You're listening to The Six Degrees of C-Dub, a segment of The C-Dub Show. Visit us on the Say Something Nice podcast network at ssnpodcast.com. Follow us at The C-Dub Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And now, on to our show. People swear they walk, but they're walking in their sleep. I pray the Lord their souls to keep, because wolves disguise their sheep patrol our streets. And we all know that which you sow, you shall reap. Those who do know, you should teach. Through every loophole, we gon' leap until we reach a common ground and become unbound. Because when your hometown becomes a battleground, tears rain down. Because it ain't fair. It's hard when you're looking for love. Salutations, everyone, everyone. This is our first episode of the C-Dub Show. I am your happy host on this late Thursday evening, C-Dub. We are recording this live on Thursday, January the 24th. And this is actually an edition of our Six Degrees of C-Dub. Um, if you've never listened to the Six Degrees of C-Dub, this is our segment where I get to talk to amazing queer folks about amazing things that they are doing in their community in some kind of way, as amazing as they are, they are six degrees away from me. I don't know how I get in contact with these people, but I do. Um, <laughs> so today I actually have a great friend of mine. I actually first encountered this um, person, this friend, one night, and when I woke up in the middle of the night, and because I sleep with my television on, and the television was on TV One, and it was on Roland Martin's TV One Now, or whatever that heck that show was, and I heard this great voice speaking, and I woke up, and I started following them on Twitter, and that person was Ashley Yates. Um, you may know Ashley as one of the key organizers in Ferguson during the protests after the killing of unarmed teenager Mike Brown. And Ashley continues to organize around issues of police brutality and institutional racism and just amazing great works in protecting black bodies. So please, without a track, because I don't have one, let's welcome Ashley to the show. Yay! That's as close as we have it as an applause track, because I don't have an applause track. <laughs> It is. It suits. It works. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Ashley, how are you this evening? I know it's been a long day. It has been a long day and a long week, but I'm doing really good. I'm glad to be having this conversation with you. And for that intro, um, I can't remember. <laughs> the, that, that, I, that, I might that, have been 
like once or twice. I can't remember the last time, but that's, that's really interesting to hear. So thank you for that. And thank you for those kind words. Oh, you're certainly welcome. You know, I we we actually met in real life. What was that? A couple of years ago at the Blackout mm-hmm. Conference at UC mm-hmm. Davis. And, you know, as we do, yes. once we meet amazing people, we have to stay in contact with them. So I am I am blessed to consider myself a friend of yours. I'm drinking wine right now. Are you drinking anything right now? I've got a cup of water, but I mean, I might join you if that's what we're doing. <laughs> Look, we might, sometimes we need to have refreshing beverages. I'm, I have some Sauvignon Blanc here, so we can get that going. I'm drinking like a red wine blend from some company called Simpler Wines that I found at Trader Joe's. And it's supposed to be Chardonnay and, I don't know, Rosé or something. I don't know. I ran out of rum. Listen, when I go to when I go to Trader Joe's, I'm all about the two buck chuck. I can't yes. even lie. I think it's like three dollars now, but I still call it two buck chuck. Cause... It went up like inflation sent two buck chuck up, and I it's get the same that price as avocados some... now. Yeah, you mean one avocado? One avocado. right? You're right. One un avocado. One, one avocado. I'm all about that and my organic grape, not grapes, raisins. I'm addicted to raisins and dried seaweed. I don't know why. Okay. <laughs> things things you know all right oh you know it's important to know so all right okay. Ashley. so we talked about how you know a lot of people nationwide know you as one of the key organizers um around the untimely murder of mike brown in ferguson and if you can just tell us a little bit about for those who may not have known that about you what was that that time like and how did you end up getting involved after um that killing yeah, I mean, that time was wild. I'm still I'm still getting used to being introduced by my name. <laughs> for the last four years, people have literally walked up to me and been like, are you Brown Blaze? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> but that's, that's also a really strange thing. That name was like an inside joke. Um, it actually came from some of my college organizing days on um, the campus of University of Missouri, Columbia called Mizzou. And we all had like, our little squad of exec board people who were working in this black organization. And we gave ourselves like black superhero names, but they were like the most ridiculous names you could ever think of. Um, <laughs> but like somebody was like toasted pecan. And, like, somebody else was like bite-sized Snickers, my homie Portia from Chicago. Um, and then I got Brown Blaze, which was actually, I guess the coolest. And uh, I used the social media and it stuck. And that was the name I was tweeting under when Mike Brown died because, you know, it was just, it was like my social media name, you know, it wasn't something that I ever expected the world to call me. Um, but, you know, during that time I had grown up in Florissant, um, which is right next door to Ferguson. A lot of people still don't really understand how, you know, St. Louis is structured, but there were at the time of Mike Brown's murder, like 94 municipalities in St. Louis County, Mm. you know, some of them were as tiny as a mile long. And, you know, Ferguson was one of the smaller ones. It was six miles. It's six miles long, you know, so it's a very small municipality city and um, so small that it shared a school district um, with the school district that I went to high school in and middle school, Florissant, Ferguson. And so that was kind of how I got involved is, you know, it was just my neighborhood. It was my community. It was my city. And it was an 18 year old boy that was, you know, lying in the street for four and a half hours with no explanation. Um, and so, I, you know, I went down there, put my boots on the ground as soon as I got off work the same day he was murdered and pretty much just never left and spent a lot of time using, you know, my private social media channels to get the word out because it was very clear that there was an obvious effort to, you know, keep this contained for media, not to report on it, to not say his name, to not, you know, 
tell the facts about the violence and the repression that the community had faced from day one. You know, they brought tear gas and dogs and set fires from day one in broad daylight. Um, and so, yeah, I just took to my social media channels and said everything that I could say, you know, put the truth out, everything that I could verify and was hearing and, you know, just ask people to stand with us. And we were able to coordinate and, you know, just organize, uh, organize the resistance on the ground, organize networks across the nation and really get people to, you know, come to, to Ferguson and support us and support our message and go home and spread this movement into, you know, what grew into the Black Lives Matter movement in this iteration. So. And, you know, I'm ashamed to say that the, I I didn't know about the geography of St. Louis and Florissant and everything until Welcome to Sweetie Pies. I'm ashamed to say that. But it's... <laughs> Don't be ashamed. Sweetie Pies is a point of pride. What do you mean? <laughs> What's like that? You mean yeah. Flores and I'm like, that's the one where such and such work. No, seriously. Oh yeah, no, there was um yeah, Sweetie Pies, one of their first locations was actually on uh West Florissant. It was the big one. That was where we'd all go after church. It See? was one of their I think it might have been their first one actually. With mm-hmm. the fried chicken. Yes, oh with the fried chicken <laughs> and the uh the fried corn and the greens, look, See? all of it. See? Okay, so you made me not feel so bad. Okay. Not so at all. let me <laughs> ask you this. So you said you are just getting used to people calling you by your name. What do you, what was that like? Like you said that you were using your private social media chat um, channels and of course the media swooped down on that. What was that like to have, I mean, you're already an organizer, but of course this kind of amplified your voice. What was that like to have media swoop down on your personal channels and just kind of take over in it to kind of swell the way that it did and really take on a life of its own? Um, I'll let you know when I figure it out. <laughs> 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 I actually I ask my friends like that all the time because I don't know it seems like once a lot of people start listening to you on social media like why, life just becomes really weird like you start getting it emails is. and calls and stuff from people and you're like how did you even find me like what happened oh no like my like I said I still haven't figured it out I, I look up and I talk to you know my family all the time and my friends and I'm like what the hell like I mean, this this is a very likely trajectory for my life, but also like what like what's right. happening? You know, like I, I went from, um, you know, doing displays for a retail store um, to, you know, meeting the president, the first black president. Uh, I never thought I'd miss him so much. But um, <laughs> oh, man, man. we're going we gonna to get to that because. Not me. I'm going to drink right now. <laughs> Listen, I just poured some. So, uh, um, <laughs> but you know, to, to meeting to meeting the um, first black president and speaking in front of the UN, you know, against human rights violations in four months, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and doing you know TV and international interviews when I had never done an interview before. So yeah, I've been an organizer since I was in my teenage years in some capacity. But you know that work and a lot of um, organizing work is focused locally, you know? Um, and then we have opportunities where we're able to make some connections and really, you know, do a national swell and the murder of Mike Brown and, you know, what happened subsequently in Ferguson turned out to be that, but yeah, it's not something that anyone can prepare you for. Um, I just, I think literally yesterday, and I don't even really care about Colin Kaepernick, but yesterday (laughs) he followed me and I noticed he follows like under 200 people. And I was like, Oh shit. And I, you know, I felt like this, again, like this weight, but you really can't actually lean into that. I mean, if I look at my followers list, um, which every so often, you know, I'll I'll just kind of glance in there. And then I remember like all of the political people and media people and just like, quote unquote, you know, important folks that follow me. And and it can be really stagnating because again, you know, I came from 
having 800 followers, which were just like my high school, you know, my community, my high mm-hmm. school friends, my Mizzou people, um, the college I went to two years before that. And that was pretty much it. So <laughs> I went from, you know, having a very small circle to having um, a very large one with, you know, some people who are responsible for carrying narratives and knowing that those folks are mm-hmm. watching, you know, my timeline to understand what's happening. And so, you know, through the period of Ferguson, it was definitely a really heavy responsibility, but it was also one that you know, I took on, um, because I knew how important it was to get it out and I knew how suppressed, you know, everything was. And, um, again, how media wasn't even trying to say Mike Brown's name. So I remember one of the first things that happened to me was it wasn't local media. It wasn't national media that reached out. It was actually international media that first started paying attention to Mike Brown really closely. And so I got, you know, requests from Ireland and Canada and, Brazil and you know like all these places that I had you know as a kid from the Midwest kind of only like read about and dreamt about in books you know calling me and saying we're paying attention to what's happening can you tell us um and so you know that was overwhelming but at the same time really affirming because it you know was an affirmation that the things that I was feeling in that moment things that other people were feeling the fact that we were putting it all on the line and really conscious about building you know well, we didn't know it would be an international movement, but at the time, like definitely a national movement, you know, was right. really something that was happening and that we weren't, you know, entirely crazy to think was possible. Um, but still at the same time, it's crazy to experience it. Like I said, I'm like folding shirts one day and then like literally flying to the UN to be like, hey, guess what's happening? Black um, people are you know, dying. Within a couple of months. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, like people are dying, but like also there's a military occupation of my city. Did y'all know? Right. Like, right. Know? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think people understood like they're, you know, when they called the National Garden, they sent hundreds and hundreds of units. And so literally Ferguson was occupied territory. You would see, you know, Humvees on the highway with you, on side streets with you. I would go to the grocery store and there would be a Humvee. There would be a Humvee parked a block away from my house because they were surveying, you know, surveillancing certain activists. Yeah. So, you know, like you see these things on Iraq and whatnot and whatever, but driving around, you know, the city that I grew up in and that I love and that I'm from and seeing it really be occupied was like, something is really off here. <laughs> like, right. You know, like it, it's very, and, and that was for m- at least a month, you know, it wasn't a day or two. Like they came in and they set up shop and they stayed. Do you ever feel like, and I must, I'm going to lead into this question with speaking on the song that we started the, the segment with, because the fair use act says that we must. So <laughs> the fair <Yeah>. use <laughs> act says that we must be able to tie in the music that we play into what we're talking about. So okay. the, the song, <laughs> the song that I was playing was um, "It Ain't Fair" by Bilal and the Roots from the movie Detroit. I've never seen the movie Detroit, but I do know that it had to do with you know the riots in Detroit and of course occup- occupation and uh, militarization. Um, do you ever sometimes in this work that we do um, talking about protecting black bodies and we're talking about militarization of our communities after a police murder and occupation all of that and recalling that this has happened before does it ever does that ever make you a little bit weary like you know we're literally in some ways fighting the same fight that we've been fighting in the same ways with the same reactions does that ever make you weary sometimes um absolutely it does. Um, I mean, you know, you mentioned Detroit. I think often of, you know, L.A. and Watts. Um, another place that I think often about and I actually visited 
less than a month after Mike Brown's murder is Cincinnati, which a lot of people mm. don't even know about. Um, mm. So I'm gonna plug somebody real quick because she won't plug herself. <laughs> but my my ex roommate, um, April Martin, is a filmmaker, a black queer filmmaker, and she actually right. So she actually has like the only documentation, the only documentary that was made on the Cincinnati riots called Cincinnati Goddamn. Oh, wow, um, okay. which I am trying mm-hmm, like really important work. Like I'm plugging her because like that's my homie, but also I'm plugging her because this is like important, important shit. Yeah. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't. I met her when I moved out to Oakland, and I had no clue that this movie existed. And I had gone up to Cincinnati. Um, I was visiting Dayton to do some work, or Beaver Creek, uh, which is close to Dayton, to do some work around. Um, I'm sorry, John Crawford III, um, who was murdered right right before Mike Brown. Mm -hmm. And so I went up there to kind of build with the folks up there. And then we headed to Cincinnati to kind of just learn. And, you know, I I knew about what had happened in, I think, 2001, but I didn't really have a good grasp. And so I went up there and got, you know, to hear from the community, got to see, you know, some of how they had memorialized, um, you know, what had happened there also got to get a copy of the community agreement. They had a historic um, community agreement come out with the police and the community there that, you know, other fl- other folks like North Carolina later used and got credited for building the model for, but it actually came from Cincinnati. And so I got to, you know, see all of this and I kept wondering, like, where are the voices from the people, you know, and I've told numerous folks from Ferguson this, that we can't recreate that of, you know, not having our voices heard. We can't, allow people to not know the truth of how things happen, how things spread, you know, how things were um, disseminated and just everything that happened because we need to learn from that. Um, So absolutely, like I have a lot of moments of not necessarily despair, but just frustration with realizing how we haven't, you know, we haven't archived our history, but also the ways in which we've been really deterred from archiving our history and the Mm -hmm. things that have happened and the way that our history is not valued. And then, you know, a little bit of anger us not having those blueprints to learn from because I am watching us make the same mistakes, particularly I'm thinking right now of the moment with, and I think we're past it, but two years ago, you know, there was like this giant co-optation of we need to shove everything into the democratic party. Right. So Mm -hmm. all of the momentum, all the power we had built, all the hopes and dreams were like, now we need to elect these people. Um, And for someone like me, who is really an advocate for working outside of the system or with the system in a new way, because I really acknowledge that the entire thing is, you know, not functioning for us or for our prosperity. That was really disheartening. And especially disheartening as someone who knows the history of, you know, the civil rights movement and Mississippi Freedom Summer and people Mm -hmm. like Fannie Lou Hamer, right, and her experience with um, the Chicago Democratic National Convention and also New Jersey Democratic, you know, National Convention and the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party and knowing how they did everything right, right, and got to the very end. And then we're still, you know, gatekeepers that said, well, we know you did everything right. You know, you did everything by the book, you did the law, but we're still not going to allow you in. And then watching that rehappen with folks like Andrew Gillum and Mm -hmm. specifically Stacey Abrams, right, and just going like, ah, did we learn nothing? Um, But then again, um, whenever I get frustrated about that, I really, 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 really have to remember that, our status as quote unquote first class citizens in this country is so new mm-hmm. and we need to give ourselves some grace for that. And I think we have learned um, lessons and we have moved progress and we have moved forward at actually a speed that we don't give ourselves credit for. So whenever I get frustrated with that, I do remember, you know, it was my my 
parents' parents that couldn't vote, right? Like it was my parents' parents' parents that were enslaved and, you know, folks that are still alive that can still tell the stories of mm-hmm. not only Jim Crow, right, but what it meant to be like a sharecropper in the South and folks that are still doing that today. So, yeah, I try not to get that down on it, but it is frustrating because um, those are some very, very, very hard lessons that we learned. And I would love to see us be able to apply that so we don't go through it again. Wow. Yeah. Let's talk about a little bit about, you know, you work every day on elevating the power of black people and protecting black, black lives. You know, what is what are you doing right now? Are you working with a particular organization or what's your work looking like these days? There's a lot. <laughs> so, That's what I know. That's why I was like, well, what you been doing? No, I'm just playing. I know. So um, at, at my heart, I mean, People know me as an organizer, frontliner and all of that, but I've always been a writer. I majored in English in college. Um, That is my heart, um, all kinds. And so a lot of my role in this movement outside of organizing and networking and um, building up leadership has been narrative strategy and communications work and really putting forth, you know, some of the more complicated ideas in a way that can move um, culture forward. And so for the last year and a half, I've really been working on building up um, my entity I'm calling uh, a cultural architecture firm, but just will be a place to house all of my work, a lot of the creative work, because it's not just press releases and media. You know, I don't even really engage in a lot of those things, but it is having a clear narrative strategy that, you know, we can bring home um, to Black people that makes sense, that brings some of these ideas back down to earth in a way that we can really move them forward together. And so, you know, that's through art, that's through different media, that's through, you know, social media, it's through a variety of methods. And so I'm really, for the past year and a half, I've been building that up and making sure that I have something to house a lot of the work and a lot of the support work that I do for families and, you know, organizations that are more often than not really poor and broke, but doing really important work. Um, and then aside from that, you know, I just, I partner with a lot of different organizations and people. So one of the last bigger projects I did was the messaging for in a project called um, Why, Why I Didn't Report, mm, which okay. was um, a pop-up in the New York, which kind of is building off of the Me Too movement, right? So it's like understanding that we have all of these survivors and people who are coping with the enormous amount of sexual assault and harm that happens in our communities and in our society, and that we don't really necessarily, or that we don't have the structure um, or even the understandings to really support, you know, all of the survivors. And that's part of why we've been failing for so long. So why didn't um, why didn't I report was really an entryway for folks to kind of hold space for the fact that we're all navigating something a little bit new together and trying to push in a different direction. And then also a space for survivors to come together, um, tell their stories and receive resources that they can then, you know, move forward through the trauma that they've experienced and build community from there. So it's a community building project, but also a resource project for survivors. Uh, so I do things like that. You know, I work with families of police violence often. I'm working with um, one in particular right now, um, I would, yeah, I'd like, I'd rather not say their name because we're, we're working on changing some, some, yeah. I mean, just to be honest, like this, this, and it, it's something that everyone has, has seen. Well, actually I'll just be clear. We're really pushing on the case of Jasmine Barnes because what's happening there is, um, just an incredible cover up, incredibly deceptive. And, you know, we're getting community eyes back to really lifting and supporting that family and also the family of the two men who have been wrongfully accused of her murder and, you know, legal terms, people can say like blah, 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 blah. But speaking from an activist stance, we're looking at this with discerning eyes and nothing about this makes sense. So really helping connect 
people like that and communities and families to the resources that they need to, you know, try to pursue justice um, with folks who will actually help them do that. And then, you know, I do community and um, capacity building and training with organizations and schools throughout the nation. Anybody that calls me, um, you know, if there's a need, I'll go. And if there's a check and there's a need, I'll definitely go. (laughs) Because people believe or people assume that folks that are in that are doing work, you know, we still we all live in California. (laughs) <laughs> we, we, we got it we got well it <laughs> yeah i live in california and it's just mad expensive out here period like even to eat but you know also like one of the things you know for better or worse is that i remember a lot of elders were telling us in ferguson that we were experiencing brain drain or you know talent drain i'm like what is that and i looked up and it was you know the case that whether strategically or you know by other means a lot of the strongest leaders had taken or been offered opportunities, you know, to go to other places. And at that point in time, you know, I was still in the city. I actually left for um, personal reasons, but noticing that, yeah, a lot of us, you know, were scattered throughout the the country um, shortly after, you know, within six months after Mike Brown's murder to a year. And that a lot of these nonprofits were offering us positions and jobs, but it was really just that they wanted you know, to have a hot activist at the moment on staff, or they really wanted to exploit our labor, right? And come in and have Black people um, who had built this movement and, you know, really put our all into it, be put in a subordinate position so that they could just use our faces. And, mm-hmm. you know, they take advantage of your need to to have a livelihood. And, you know, I, I won't even say luckily, because I've definitely really struggled and still been struggling, but you know, I've been able to to find a way and be supported by community and, you know, have um, enough jobs and contracts and connects here and there to float myself, but definitely not, you know, build up any um, reserve of resources by any means, which right. I really <laughs> wish I had personally, but also, you know, is necessary to do some of this work. And so that's really my focus on this next year um, is regaining some of the resources and the access that you know, myself and other people trusted other people to hold. Um, and they really didn't and just kind of leveraged them to build their own personal brands. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely a factor and definitely something I'm focused on. um, It is, it is a misconception. I think that all well act, all activists are like well-paid, um, a a very, very select few people who have built brands, you know, are well-paid, but the majority of them aren't actually even activists. That's a, and that's a whole nother listen. You, you I mean, listen, I told listen. you, you let me start talking. I'm going to talk. And then I let you start <laughs> drinking. I just, I was. Listen, it. I got a little, my wine is about halfway, so. <laughs> well, it was good that you leaned into talking about narratives because this episode is actually going to air during Black History Month when we're going to be trying to really focus on you know, black stories, especially those of black women and really about, Mm -hmm. you know, holding narratives and the importance of narratives. I always say that, you know, change actually starts with somebody telling a story, but we have to tell the story. But as you said, we have to make sure we are archiving that story. You know, I'm seeing a lot with our students. They're not getting these stories. You know, these are students who are like in 12th grade Mm -hmm. and they never, they, things like lynchings and stuff are things that they've kind of heard of. Mm-hmm. But to actually, even if it's something like 12 Years a Slave, which people debate, you know, how good or bad that was. But for students like this who have never seen or don't know what slave life was, seeing Patty mm-hmm. being brutally beaten was like they were crying. I said, good. Mm-hmm. I did my job. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sure for for some folks that this was and I've never I'll, I'll just be honest, like Roots is probably the only like non or the only black like 
uh, super black movie I haven't seen. Like my aunt made me watch all of them. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think like this, their their generation's roots. And you know, I was speaking to someone the other day about underground, and I think you know, for for better or worse, there were definitely some turns that that took towards the end. But as a person who walked onto a plantation for the first time in my life in 2015 and, you know, had a spiritual experience and was able to talk about that with other black women, you know, we, we all agree that it was the closest depiction that we had gotten to experience in our lifetime around what daily life may have looked like on a plantation. Right. And some of the more mundane aspects um, of the everydayness and even the violence that our ancestors had lived through. Right. Because we, we hear about lynchings and we hear about whippings and beatings, but we don't hear about, you know, the everyday um, violence and manipulation and the ways in which they were subjected to just inhumane, you know, conditions. And we don't really get to hold and consider that. And so, yeah, I think things like that are super, super important. So I'm glad you're showing that. And I'm glad they had tears. And I hope they, you know, (laughs) I hope they were able to absorb it because it's important. It's, It's you know, we have to remember our histories. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. So we've talked a Mm -hmm. lot about the different faces of abuse. And really in our news cycle, there's so many, there's so many stories right now in the news cycle about just abuse that you get kind of, I don't, I don't know what you call it. You just get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but then we start having conversations about how that can look different when it's, when the abuse is from, you know, a woman towards a man, when the abuse is between queer individuals. Um, can you speak a little more about that and how you see that servicing in our community, especially the, the conversations that we're starting to have, whether it's about a Gillette commercial about toxic masculinity or really about whether or not we should still be following certain performers because they have been abusive? How is how do you, how are you seeing that um, surface in our community? Hmm everywhere and that I think I that's what it, makes um, it hard because it is everywhere and it's different and I think it, so many people are having so many different conversations it's like mm-hmm. that's overwhelming itself <laughs> it, it really is um I think that one of the things that we really need to like kind of hone in on and determine are like what are our values what is our baseline what are the things that we believe that every person should have right and that's something we don't do um even though we might say we do right but if we truly believe that every person should have water we'd be fighting for flint right like right. if we truly believed every person should have land we would be fighting for the Gullah Geechee people and all the black farmers that have lost their land and you know indigenous folks and indigenous rights um you know if we truly believe these things and we would really be actively fighting for them with all our body even when they don't happen to us and i think that um abuse culture has kind of taken away our ability to really relate when something isn't happened to isn't directly happening to us mm. um because we you know we see all of these these different harms all over and we don't really quite know how to relate to them even though we might say that we care about everyone so like we really need to hone in on what the values are that we believe everyone should have right and then be able to apply them everywhere And I think like one of the most important values that um, for me really helped me be able to understand and identify abuse when it was happening, whether it be personally or on a micro or macro scale. Right. But just really look at this and say, you know, this is something that is an abusive structure, is an abusive behavior, is the idea of um, self-determination or self-agency. Right. Because really, when we're talking about abuse, what we're talking about is the attempt to control another person. Mm -hmm. who is a living being with free will. Right. Right. And so I think 
that is one of the most basic things for me that I can, you know, tell people to kind of, if they're overwhelmed or they're like, oh, this is everywhere, you know, I don't really know how to identify it. And it, it is, you know, kind of amorphous, especially when we're talking about things like gender or race identity or, you know, class privilege. Um, abuse can show up in a very, very different way as, you know, I think we're discussing right now with R. Kelly, right? Like he had the monetary means to kind of pay off people and folks are wondering if that's even abuse if people accepted payments, right? Because right. we're not able to really see it right? In the same way that we are someone who smacks someone and says, no, you're going to listen to me. Um, But I think if we, you know, draw back and really draw to that base of like self-agency and self-determination and that every person should be afforded that and that anyone who tries to strip that away, no matter what means it's through, you know, is is enacting an abusive culture and, you know, part of an abusive cycle and system, then we'll start to see the various ways in which this shows up in our, um, in our society. And again, it is everywhere, but you know, again, the base of like allowing some, not even allowing, but people having self-agency and self-determination when you really set that as a base value, as a base standard, I think that's one of the most core things that um, when you get it, you're able to identify when someone is, you know, trying to strip that away and able to identify it as abusive because abusive is all about controlling someone else, which none of us should be doing, right? Right. Um, even even our children, right? Like people will say like, well, you got to control, you know, like that child is a person with identity and agency. We don't control children. You know, we nurture them, we teach them, we raise them, but you don't control any other human being, right. you know? And so I, and I think like, again, that core value is something that once we really grasp, it'll start to help people identify it in all its different forms. You hit on one thing about how we react. And I know that there was, there's recently, there was a video of a young woman being assaulted in a, an Atlanta nightclub. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, being a teacher, I'm used to seeing kids stand around while other kids fight and, and take a video. And I mean, when we were in high school, we stood around and watched people fight. So I'm kind of used to that now. But and I didn't watch the video. All I had to do was get the, the descriptor. But the idea that people stood and watched while a young lady was raped in front of them so that they can take a video and put it online and hopefully go viral. Like, mm-hmm. how has our cognitive ability to even take in these abusive behaviors like how does that how does that change it, it a lot of times we put it just on social media and you know people want to take videos but how else has it changed or has how do you think rather that it has changed um i mean it's changed drastically so this is also what i like i'm uh like a human scientist. I'm a sociologist. I study culture. (laughs) Um, You know, so one of the things that I really started looking into was like, where did, especially the black community really turn into narcissism? And I think, you know, for, it's been kind of pinpointed to everyone, the movement that a lot of really harmful psychological movements have come out of um, the West Coast, actually, unfortunately, Stanford. Um, But a study and, mm -hmm. oh, you can look into it. (laughs) But uh, you know, a researcher who put out this study around, I think it was, um, I'm trying to think of the term that he used because it's one we use all the time. It's not necessarily confidence, but like self-confidence, right? And like this whole theory that he put out around how people need to have it and these various different things, which on the surface, it sounds, you know, good. It sounds right, right? We should have confidence in ourselves and we should believe in ourselves, but really extending that into like, cutting off interdependence, right? And making everything about independence as though we're individual creatures. And especially black people, that's not something we forget, right? We are communal people. We are village people. We are inter 
you know, we have always understood that we exist in family units and community units, right? And as part of a larger pattern, even within our religions, right? Like we are earth reverent. So we always recognize that there is something else other than us that we are moving with, right? Um, and then you have these, you know, Western ideals, these these white ideals that we've really internalized of, you know, bootstrap mentality. Everybody get your own dog eat dog world. You know, I got to make sure it's about me. Like, and I think that, you know, really has translated into what we see today where everyone's like, ah, well, mind your business. That's not my problem. You know, it's just this really individualistic attitude Mm -hmm. of everybody take care of self as though that's ever been the way that any society has survived. It just hasn't. And again, specifically black societies and particularly oppressed black societies have never survived under individual standards, like ever. We've always had to support each other and lift as we climb. Right. And so the, the adoption of that into our communities is just really sad. And I think kind of, you know, what am I trying to say, like rears its head and, and things like that, where we're completely disconnected from violence because it wasn't always that way. You right. know, I, we laugh and we talk, but like my grandmother and my dad, you know, have told me stories and I've listened and sat at the feet of elders who like everything wasn't perfect, but they would know that if somebody did something down the street, by the time you got home, your mama was going to know about it, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and now it's not quite that way, right? Like that is not adopted as a, or even, you know, the whispers that people might have, we might not be doing the Me Too moment of unveiling and publicly outing abusers, right? Which I think is an evolution in understanding that these other methods didn't work. But even then we were testing out and saying, you know, we were whispering to each other, don't leave your kid with so-and-so, right? Like, don't, don't you do that. We might not say exactly what happened, but we made it clear that that was a person or somebody who needed, you know, protection. Like we had ways of passing. And I think like that's really just been broken down with that, you know, adaptation of like what happened in the 80s with this individualistic, like everyone just needs to be about themselves attitude. And, you know, we see it now with the people that are uplifted as our community figures. We see it, you know, it's a it's a symptom of capitalism, but we've really adopted it as like a community value, which is so harmful because it leads to things like folks watching folks get raped in a in a, you know, in a in a club and only thinking about how they can personally benefit from that. Mm. Like how sick is that, you know, but if you're always thinking about personal benefit, then it doesn't matter what it. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what we see so much with our youth. And that, I think that's what scares me because we are a little bit different. I mean, we at least had at least either if it was five years of our childhood without the allure of social media or and posting things and everything mm-hmm. with with our kids like i mean they're sitting in class snapchatting you know harmful mm-hmm. things about each other and they but they don't understand that it's harmful that is how they get enjoyment now oh look what such and such did and it's like come on i i just wonder what's going to happen when they get to be adults when you know when they are the the electeds of the world and making policies and making decisions um which is actually I do too because you know, pain has has become spectacle. I was just saying, I, you know, pain has become spectacle, and like you were saying, you know, we used to watch fights as kids. Like, yeah, we we definitely, you know, there were some times where people used to set up a time, be like, hey, three thirty, everybody be outside at three thirty. We're about to be there, we're about to go to the like, bar station. Amped, the know? bar station after Always school. Always about to go. Yeah, <laughs> but, but like also, what I what I you know <laughs> what I very distinctly remember is that. When those fights kind of cross the line into like, you know, 
really aggressive violence or someone was going to get hurt, like we always interceded. Yeah. You know, we understood that people had stuff to get out. But I'm even speaking, like thinking specifically of an instance that happened at my high school where, or two actually, where one girl um, started swinging a lock at another girl and people were like, that's too far. You know, like yeah. you can't be swinging locks at people. Like you about to bust somebody's head or break their, t- you know, we got to let that go. And, you know, folks broke that up. And then there was another instance where a guy tried to come to school with skates, like literal skates and tried to like beat people with them. Yeah. And folks let him get beat up by several people. Mm-hmm. But folks let him get beat up by several people. <laughs> he was dangerous. And he had also been talking shit about somebody who had died the day before. Oh, yeah. You see, so yeah. our sense of community justice was like, you don't come and speak ill about the dead, somebody who just died and that we all love. So, you know, we had senses of what was right and what was wrong. And we did interject when those, you know, those boundaries were crossed. So, but I don't see that. And, you know, a lot of these younger folks, like you said, it has just become about what they can exploit. I do worry about that. I don't know what that's going to turn into. Oh my goodness. Well, I, you know, I actually watched an interview with you. It was a couple of years old, um, but it was on Global Grind and you were speaking on community learning their power outside of elected positions. And you have also talked about, you know, um, your opinion on working outside of the system. And you were talking also about the power of organizing. Um, and this is kind of a couple of different questions. Um, but the first one is, when did we forget about the power of organizing? Was it, you know, I, I always tell people so many things happened to our community in the 80s and 90s. You know, was it then that we forgot? When did we forget about organizing? And what do you think, um, besides, you know, the hyper visibility of um, Black death has really brought community back to that base of grassroots organizing? Mm. I know it's a little- That's a good question. I know. I'm like, that's a good question. I saw, I'm like, what interview was that? <laughs> it was you and another but, gentleman and you're on Global Grind. So. No, I, I, I know, I know what interview it is actually. Like I, I remember the thing, but I don't remember what I said at all. And I probably haven't watched it since I filmed it, but I'm going to trust you that I said some smart stuff. <laughs> Look, um, yeah, that, no, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a bunch of things like we have to, if we're going to have, you know, an honest conversation, we have to acknowledge that, you know, the history of black organizing and the targeting of us and the efforts, um, you know, to make sure that we don't rise have been exceptional, right? Mm -hmm. So that we, we have faced, um, challenges that no other community has faced when we try to organize and ascend together. So, you know, I would be remiss to not acknowledge that as a large part of the reason why we have divested from community organizing in one way or the other. Um, and then along with that comes, you know, like the co-optation of movement. Um, and the idea, I think that even a lot of black people have internalized around American exceptionalism, right? Like this is the best country. And so therefore, like we should absolutely try everything in our power to be a part of this system, right? Because this is the ultimate And thinking about, again, like the civil rights movement and the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party and the ways in which some of those more radical demands and not even just radical, but, you know, more just basic demands around, again, the agency of black people and our ability to own things and determine our own destinies were really folded into things like the Democratic Party, right, or acts that we then thought would take care of our rights. And I still don't really 
understand, you know, all of, I don't see everything. I don't understand all of the aspects of, of what made people understand, um, around Ferguson, that this was something that, you know, we needed to really be serious about again and that the work wasn't done. Um, but you know, we all got it. I don't, you know, I don't know if it was the hypocrisy of living in this nation and thinking that we wouldn't be subjected to things like tear gas, which are like illegal to use overseas. Right. Um, or people just expecting that that wouldn't happen in the 2000s. I saw a bunch of people like, you know, say that, like that became a common thing. Like this is 2014, this shouldn't be happening. So, you know, I don't know if it was right. the shock of the year. <laughs> you know, honestly, I'm like, oh. I don't know if it's the shock of the year or, you know, I mean, I have to give credit to myself and other organizers in Ferguson for like really being able to stress the urgency of the situation and also the magnitude of what, you know, had happened. Um, there is a, you know, just a perfect storm of the screw up of the egregiousness of his murder, of, you know, people who were skilled and angry enough to stand up and continue to do that for months and months on end, um, and who have, you know, faced particular oppression in Missouri, which was, you know, the last state to free enslave people, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people, right, don't know. We think about like Confederate states and Mississippi, and it's like, yes, that's true. But if we look at the history of the state, it kind of makes sense that some of these tensions, um, exist in a different way than we see them in other states right considering our history and so yeah i don't know it just it may have been the perfect storm but i'm just i'm grateful that a lot of people were politicized and awakened and quote unquote woke you know in that moment um because we absolutely still do need community organizing um i think one thing i raised today on twitter i think her name is ria moore uh i'm sorry let me actually maybe kaya moore let me not get her name wrong but she was the only black congresswoman in vermont who just resigned, I think in November of last year, mm-hmm. um, due to, due to death threats, right? Like, so oh, I, I can't, remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. like I can't, you know, I'm not protected in this, in this position. I can't keep myself protected. You know, I'm being targeted because of that and was actually forced to step down. And, you know, that's the very thing that we've been taught to invest in, right? Like that's the very thing we've been taught to put our hope and faith in is someone ascending to the system and being the voice for the people. And so I think, you know, that happened and it was very, very clear, but there's been a lot of instances like that over the last four years where people have really looked up and um, said, you know, this is just not at all what we expected. This is not at all what we thought it was. Um, These things should not be happening and we need to find a way to, you know, push towards them being different. Um, And if it's not the system, then we need to build it. And um, the woman's name is Kia Morris, K-I-A-H. I I just want to share in case people want to look her up but yeah you know if we're realizing that these systems are not just failing those of us who are outside of it they're failing those of us who are inside of it and have ascended to certain heights you know she's a congresswoman within Mm -hmm. it so if they're not protected then we need to you know build something different and at the very least make sure that whatever is outside of it is capable of holding as much of us as possible and that's just community organizing so you know until racism is eradicated in America. I'll always believe that community organizing is necessary because no one else but us will have our backs. So shit, I'm out here. Right. <laughs> I refuse, I refuse like, here, to be like, like here hey. I am. Right. You're not going to send me to Biden door knocking on his door like, hey, buddy, having some issues. You know, like, I know damn well you don't care about me. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, of elected, so on the kind of the flip of that, you know, we are seeing a high surge or I guess resurgence. I don't know what they're calling it these days. And people of color that are running for office or that have, have been elected to office. Um, what do you think about the the new surge of quote unquote representation in electives 
I mean, what do you think as far as fighting for our liberation? I mean, there's always going to be a question. I mean, we, you know, we, we had Kamala Harris who um, announced that she's going to run for president. And of course, we know that she had a, a, a record as, as a prosecutor that is not ideal and has, and signed some bills that hurt a lot of people. And we know that most of our electives, especially that are in a certain position, have um, signed and co-signed on bills and legislation that have not necessarily been for the benefit of the people. Where do you think that political representation does serve its purpose in our fight for liberation? When it's for the good of the people, which is rarely. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very rarely. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I absolutely believe that, you know, if there are viable avenues that people should pursue that and take that. Um, I do not believe in putting all of your eggs in one basket because we've done that too often. And that was something I said with the um, governor, uh, you know, governor race with Stacey Abrams, which was like we watched or some of us watched for two, three weeks as the media even really lifted up how serious the voter suppression was right mm-hmm. with Brian Kemp. And how serious the conflict of interest was with Brian Kemp, who was in charge with the, of the elections, but also an opposing candidate to Stacey Abrams, right? Um, and we watched them talk about just all of these illegal actions and all of these things that shouldn't be happening that were happening. And, you know, I publicly wondered, like, okay, it's great for us to rally behind her. But then after she loses, not to be pessimistic, but let's just be clear, we're being told that all of these things are being set up by someone with no checks and balances who was in control of this. So, like, let's just be realistic. When she loses, if, right? Right. Then what? Um, And, you know, I've seen that she has filed a suit against Georgia, which I think is great on a legal perspective, but that doesn't help Black people build power. You know, that doesn't help the affected people build power. And so I will always be an advocate for the fact that we need to continue to build outside of these systems, even as we're interacting with them, Um, because that's the only way that we'll, you know, be able to even continue to hold them, you know, accountable. The only reason... Yeah, the only reason we were able to push for and, and, you know, get some of the changes in Ferguson that even we forced nationally, you know, we were able to force the first national pass um, force on policing, which, you know, for what it's worth, that's the first time that's ever happened. Right. Mm. So like those things only came. And, you know, I'm I'm I said this directly to President Obama's face at the time, like you're only speaking with us because these cities are rioting. You're only speaking with us because you want to know how to silence us. You're only speaking to us because. That Black Friday on 2014, we were able to rally people for a Black Friday blackout, which, you know, equated to an 11 percent drop in Black Friday sales at a time when all of the economic experts were anticipating that there would be a gain that year. Right. Which was the equivalent to seven billion dollars. And I told him this in his face. Right. Like we know that the only way that you will pay attention to us is when we're able to impact you economically or impact you on a level that you care about. And so we're going to continue to keep doing that. But if we don't build power outside of these systems, then we're not going to do that. Right. And I think it's so interesting because these last three years, we've seen elected officials taking part in some of the very same tactics that they critiqued four or five years ago in Ferguson. Right. Mm -hmm. Why y'all shutting down stuff? Why y'all blocking stuff? Why y'all being disrupted? Now you in people's offices, right? You shutting down stuff. You being disrupted. Mm -hmm. Like, so again, like, why am I electing you if you're using the exact same tactics that I use? Or why are you engaging with this system if it takes the exact same tactics that it takes from someone outside of the system to get a response from them, right? Like, we need to account for that. Um, but yeah, that I, I don't know. Like, I think when it, you know, when it works and we can push on a local level, you know, absolutely. 
but it also takes community. You know, it, it can't be figureheads. A lot of times people are like, we're going to elect this one person and they're going to be representative of the people. But again, to kick back to Kia Morris, like if we're not protecting those people within these systems, then what can they really even do for us? Yeah, Exactly. Right. So, you know, a, a lot of people have asked me since 2014 to like run, run, can you represent? And I'm like, I understand why you would see me as a good or viable candidate, but I also recognize the realities that we're operating under. So I'd ra- much rather be working with my community mm-hmm. where I can build my agency and protection than stepping foot into a hostile environment where I have no safety and protection. Or even stepping into an environment like people ask me all that. And I, I mean, I'm active in, you know, the Democratic Party and everything and people ask me to run. But to me. I mean, I feel like I have more power as a voice talking shit about mm-hmm. people and, and forcing them to do certain things. Because once you get in, regardless of what people say, because I know people right now, and I'm not going to name no names, but in I local mean. positions <laughs> who claim that they are, you know, not beholden to anybody and for the people. But mm. everybody is working for and with somebody. Once yep. you get into those elected positions, it's just an inevitable thing. And I would rather just be out here, I mean, supporting, you know, barking like a dog when I have to. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's just, I want to be able to say what I want to say. I don't want to feel like I have to stifle what I need to say for nobody. Because when I want to cuss, I want to cuss. Yep. (laughs) And I mean, again, like engaging with those systems without building up power outside of them forces you to engage in a way that is compromising. And Mm -hmm. compromise with white supremacy means my demise. So I refuse. Yep. I refuse to compromise with white supremacy, right? Like, we can compromise on some other shit. Like, maybe the bridge should be three miles long. <laughs> like, that's the difference, you know what I mean? Like, that's some governmental shit we can compromise on. But, go- like, compromising over the safety of my people, over the, you know, criminalization and over-incarceration and the fact that we can't have bare, you know, necessities that we need, like, that's just not something that I'm willing to go back and forth with you on. I'm not going back and forth with you niggas over no table about that. Right. And a lot Um, of people don't understand about compromising. I had a conversation actually just recently, you know, with an administrator at my school as far as compromising with, you know, racist attitudes from students. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You know, we are here to, I told kids, I said, we are here to break down racism. We don't cater to racism in this. I don't know what y'all do in the rest of these classrooms. But in this classroom, don't we care. don't cater to racism. Right. <laughs> for so, me, as for me and my house, we right. don't serve. <laughs> I told him they were, they, their, their third quarter question was, do you care about black people? And then they're like, well, I don't understand the question. Because if you don't care about black oh. people, this is a black literature class. It doesn't mean that I don't won't like you. I told him, I said, you won't pass. And it doesn't mean that I don't like you, but it means that you have to care about the story that you are reading in order to respond to them. If you don't care about them, you're not paying attention. You're not going to be able to respond. So you should go take an art class or something. Do something that you like. (laughs) Go and take one of these uh, ancient literature classes they made me take to get my English degree. I had to read all that white literature. Go and take that. Go take British literature and read the Arabic and the Dubliners and stuff. Take that. (laughs) <laughs> yep it's more than enough classes for y'all right no, that's good that's interesting <laughs> so let me ask you this this is a little bit this is a very vague book question um oh it's something okay. that i am struggling with these days and i want to ask you your opinion what does it let mean me take to my last sip of wine look <laughs> what does it mean to you to root for everybody black i know that's a hard question to answer huh and, and, no, and, I mean, go ahead, answer. No, no, go ahead. I want to hear the rest of your thoughts. Well, no, I was just going to say, you know, in a time where we have to start, you know, we're throwing around that all skin folk and kin folk, which I totally believe. 
So marrying those two together, what does it mean to you to root for everybody black when you still have to discern who ain't actually mm-hmm. your kinfolk? Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing that like comes to mind hearing that question <laughs> for me is, um, I'm like, is there a question? Um, but the first thing that comes to mind for me is that I really, really long for the day that we really accept that holding someone accountable and not even pushing them, but holding them to being the best person that they can be isn't a form of punishment. Mm -hmm. And I think once we do that, then it becomes easier to actually root for all Black people no matter who they may be, right? Um, But if we're not doing that, that's when we come up like, I can't root for that nigga because he's doing this. Like, okay, I got you. You're right. It's a lot of people, right? But if we actually believe that rooting for Black people is holding them accountable and, you know, again, aspiring to be not only the best person we can be in some like reach your heights, young man or real woman shit. Right. Like, but like not subjecting ourselves to the behavior that is acceptable under white supremacy, which Mm. is behavior that, you know, is um, detrimental to our society or I'll say our black community. Right. So I think if we hold that, that it becomes easier to understand that yes, not all skin folk is kin folk and we can still root for all black people. Um, And I think we're seeing that, in a really toxic way with R. Kelly, right? Like we have always rooted for all black people. We have always understood that we face certain challenges, that we face certain oppressions, that we face certain attacks under this system and in this society. But at the same time, we can acknowledge that and still hold black people accountable. And I think when we don't do that, we're actually not loving black people, right? Like we're not believing that we're capable of being better than the circumstances that we've been forced into. We don't believe that we're capable of not losing our souls, right? Within this society of white supremacy that tells us that we have to either control someone or, you know, consume someone else to get ahead. Um, and so, yeah, I think like what it means to root for all black people is to remember that we are living in a society that, you know, forces a lot of us to consider really harmful behaviors as the way to, you know, get ahead, as the way to be safe, as the way to be. And also at the same time, holding us accountable and in love and acting accordingly when either we turn in or we turn away from those behaviors. Um And it's complex. You know, it's something, again, like I keep in mind that we are in a very, very new um, country and a very, very new society. And especially as black people, we are in very, very new positions on, you know, this land called the United States of America. And so I hold all of that when I say that we still have to be really cautious in calling out and understanding the ways that some of us have adopted white supremacist behaviors to, you know, survive under this but that we can't be um, soft in calling them out. You know, we can't be complacent. We can't be, we can't turn a blind eye to the behaviors that we know destroy our communities and that are harmful to, you know, a lot of people. Um, So yeah, it's a complicated thing. It means loving people, but also like holding us accountable for our shit. (laughs) I don't want anybody that says they love me and it got me out here like acting a fool, you know, like you don't love me. Or or that's a different kind of love. And that's the kind of love that I don't want where you like, well, you know what? The more people you kill, the more I'm going to marry. I'm going to be like, I'm going to need you to ask me some questions about why I'm killing so many people. Right. Right. Or like why I'm going like, that's what love looks like. It's like, nigga, this is the last body I'm going to bury if you don't tell me something. Like, 
that's what it is, you know? Like, you but instead we've adopted this idea that it's just hiding everything. Right. <laughs> and you and you can love me and call me a killer. Like you telling me the truth about my actions does not mean you don't love me. Yeah. And I think that's the problem, right? Is that we've like adopted this thing of, well, if you love me, then you only see the best in me. It's like, no, if I love you, I see all of you. Mm-hmm. That's when I really love you. If I only see the best in you, then I don't love you. Actually, I'm only seeing something, you know, what I want to see, what benefits you or what benefits me in you. Right. But if I actually love you, then you've shown yourself to me. I have received that entire self and I'm going to help you be the best person or be the person that you say you want to be in this world. Now, if you want to be a murderous nigga out here, then go ahead and do that. There's somebody who might love you for that. But again, that's a different kind of love that I don't ascribe to. My love ascribes to like treating each other kindly and being in community and supporting each other and protecting each other and protecting black babies. So if you can't do that, then like go get whatever love that is somewhere else. That is a perfect answer. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) It's just how I feel. (laughs) So this is the point in the... In the interview, now every interview series has, you know, Oprah got them questions she asked at the end of Super Bowl, Super Soul Sunday. I don't remember what all of those are. So I'll take it. To, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. To end all interviews, I ask one question: In okay. the history of Black music, what is your favorite music album piece of work by a Black artist, any genre? So, what is your favorite your favorite album, or I'm sorry, piece of work? by a black artist of any genre and why wow that is so unfair i I just want to be clear because i'm like there's so many genres and black art is just everything um puts you i know okay i'm like i want to be like kind of the asshole black quirky person and be like a visual art but i'm i just like music Music is our soul, you know. Like, it, it, it's um, everything, and yeah, it, and in my travel, um, I've been blessed to be able to 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 travel in these past couple of years to several countries in Africa and Brazil and Black nations, which has taught me so much. In Jamaica, um, and one thing that I have learned is just that the first thing that they did was criminalize the drum in a lot of the places mm. where we were, you know, winning in our liberation efforts and how important that is. So I feel like just just because of that knowledge that the drum is not only heartbeat, but life and music and communication, I feel compelled to um, pick something with drum or just like pick something musically. Um, I wish you would have like ran this by me sooner, but I'm just going to go for my heart. (laughs) I'm going to go for my heart and and go with one of my favorite artists um, who was born in Chicago, but is also partly from St. Louis, Donnie Hathaway. Um, And either, either, Either someday we'll all be free or his version of what's going on for yes. me are some of the most important things that we could pay attention to and listen to. Um, Cause I, I, I truly believe that Donnie Hathaway just poured, he is an artist that I think poured all of his, his love and also his anguish around the, the conditions of black people into his music and is one of the few artists to do both successfully at the same time. And it's really just a huge influence on me. And someday we'll all be free is like the goal and what's going on is like the reality. You know right. I mean? so either one of those I think is hugely important and also a personal choice. I'm, I'm willing to be challenged on that. There's no way to pinpoint that. <laughs> a, a lot of people don't know about Donny Hathaway's version of what's going mm. on. So that's a very good Listen. Choice. 
Ouch. Tell them to get into it. It's on the live out. It <laughs> is. They don't know about that either. So <laughs> much. And I'm a, I, listen, is is we can go through this on another show if you want to, but there's a lot of with Marvin Gaye, and that's something we have to wrestle with with the abuse of public figures and whatnot. Yeah. But as great as Marvin Gaye's, what's going on is and as iconic as it is, um, I need folks to listen to Donny Hathaway's because th- that I think is actually what it was supposed to sound like and say to us and feel like. I absolutely agree. And, you know, and on the subject of Marvin Gaye and a subject of, you know, I tell people, especially in this era of R. Kelly. My favorite Marvin Gaye album is an album that he recorded, coked out, laying on a couch, singing about his underage lover. So, I hear my dear. No, that was about his wife oh, that he cheated on. I was like, that was Tim, that, wasn't it? Okay, yeah, that was about Anna, who he cheated on with his underage oh. lover. The underage lover was the "I Want You" album. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that with new ears, based on that, because yeah. I know the album. So wait, he was laying on his couch recording that? There was a couch in the studio and he was basically laying on the couch the whole time. And he was coked out or whatever Mm. he was doing. But most importantly, he was singing. I think, I don't know, was Janice still 17 when he was recording it? I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's about to be a lot of uncomfortable conversations between that, between the the documentary about Michael Jackson. I'm I'm not emotionally prepared. I'm not. Wait, prepared. there's a documentary about Michael. Something oh yeah, on? it just was at Sundance, and it's going to be coming on. I think Showtime. It's called Leaving Neverland. And is it is it is it talking about the uh, accusations and stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's 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 going to be a test of 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 my um integrity right there. I'm gonna just be mm-hmm. honest. Yeah. Because I've I've explored and I've 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 explored and I've looked and I'm like I'm holding space for the fact that some of this could be true, but I haven't seen enough to actually you know convince me or not even convince me, but you know I haven't seen any anything that actually seems like it supports um, what I had internalized as a as a kid. You know, as a kid I had internalized that he was a child molester, and so right. now that I'm an adult, I'm like actually I got to kind of look back at some of the ev- the quote unquote you know evidence and be like hmm. Um, really know about this. Yeah, so I'll watch it because I didn't watch the R. Kelly documentary because I had been witnessing um, R. Kelly and these women and the women that he, you know, had abused experiences for almost two decades now. And so I didn't, you know, need to witness that to be convinced or to understand their stories. Um, I might, you know, have been one of the few people who actually was like, has this nigga gone to jail yet? Like, I would check up on him every so often and be like, has he gone to jail? Like, right. for real, for real. And I don't right. even believe in jail. Um, but I might I, I I will watch the Michael Jackson one because I feel like um if he has survivors that are willing to tell their stories, I definitely haven't witnessed them. But it's gonna be hard. I'm gonna need some more wine. I'm I'm, I'm wearing a Michael sure. Jackson shirt right now. I'm actually wearing the shirt that my students call the shirt that killed Michael Jackson. Because I just randomly nope. wore it one day and then he died. So <laughs> No, I'm seriously. sorry. No, seriously. I'm sorry. No, I'm seriously. Like, I was working at school. Like, oh, that's I was working at school where we had, you know, we teach, we had to dress up. They had a dress code. And then one day the principal came and he was like, tomorrow, you know, it's the end of school year. Y'all don't have to dress up. And we was like, yeah. And I went home and I was like, some just kept telling me, wear your Michael Jackson shirt. Wear your Michael Jackson shirt. So I mm. wore the shirt. And then he died that day. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> so can I tell you my story of Michael Jackson dying? Yes. I <laughs> listen, I was working and I'm again, I wasn't always a huge Michael Jackson fan, but around like my mid teens, I got really into him. Um, and you know, really 
like really um, just valued him as an artist, you know, and his contributions and his intentionality around building stuff and his um, artistic integrity. So I was like, damn it, I like this guy. Um, so I was at work, right? Because I don't like to like people because they be letting you down. But <laughs> I was at work, just to be clear, I was at work this one day and I was working, managing a shoe store in the mall. And um, the mall I was working in had kind of gotten desolate at this place. So we would like kind of go back and forth between each other's stores. So I went down to the end of like my kind of aisle where another store was which, that was actually part of the same company. And one of my really good friends was a manager. And I walked in and he was playing the radio. And it was, um, what's the boys to men song? How do I say goodbye or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, how do I? Oh, this is shit. Say goodbye. I'm all in two words. We, I start clowning. I'm like, nigga, this the song. He like, bro, you know why they playing that? I'm like, cause it's the jam. <laughs> I never forget this in my life. I will never. I'm like, cause it's the jam. He like, nah, cause Michael Jackson died. I'm like, Michael no. who? Michael who? <laughs> he like MJ. I'm like, you fucking lying. You are fucking lying. So I stay in his store. Until the end, and I hear the dude come on the radio, like, you know, the DJ or VJ or whatever. Mm. And you could tell he was broken up. He's like, man, you know, just letting y'all know <laughs> we play. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. No. I had a, I had a I nervous breakdown on the side store. of the freeway. I was sending people home. I was like, y'all don't need shoes. You need to go hug your kids because Michael Jackson died. <laughs> I had a nervous breakdown on the side of the people Because, you know, I've been a huge fan. Like, I'm an obsessive Michael Jackson fan ever since I was little. Like, people was calling me like, are you all right? And somebody called me. I was like, I'm on the side of the freeway. I'm not all right. Now, I'm not when, all right. when Aaliyah died, I was working at Borders. And, you know, her album had just came out. So we had like an Aaliyah end cap. And my friend called me at work like, girl, Aaliyah died. And I'm like, I'm looking at Aaliyah right now. She did. And they're like, Aaliyah died. I took a, I said, everybody, I'm going on a break. I took a black break for like an hour. Like, I can't handle life right now. <laughs> so when Aaliyah died, teenager... And I remember, because I was a huge music fan, and I, like, Aaliyah, Monica, TLC, and Immature were, like, my people. I had my room plastered. Everybody plastered. Like, word up, Shout right out to word up. Shout shit. out to right on. Shout out to hey, Black Hey, like, honey, all of that, right? <laughs> like, I bought that religiously. I was like, we got to go to the grocery store. It's a new album. Like, it's a new issue out. <laughs> so I got home, and I don't remember if Aaliyah passed on a Saturday or the Sunday, but I, I remember, you know, I found out about it that Sunday, because we had gotten home from church. And I'm like upstairs taking my clothes off, my church clothes and my like, you know, cousin comes in my room and she looks at my poster and she's like, oh, yeah, she died. I'm like, bitch, who died? <laughs> who on my wall died? Because like, again, I'm like, TLC, Aaliyah, all these people are young. You know, I'm like, who? She's like, Aaliyah. I said, you got to be lying. I turned on the radio just crying because at the time I was 15 and she was 22. And I remember being like, damn, like it just felt really close. You know, like yeah. it was the first person that I felt was like, I had grown up with in a sense that had passed. Oh and I remember being like, damn, 22 is so young. And now with, you know, people revisiting her, you know, status as a survivor of abuse. I just, I, I mean, it's there's so lot. many things that are just, yeah, coming back into my mind. But one thing that I think I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just holding closely is how much we love Aaliyah as a generation and as a people and how some of that might be steeped in an unconscious understanding that she was a survivor and that mm -hmm. she needed protection. Right. Like even if we couldn't voice that, because let's be clear, like Aaliyah was not. And I, I love Aaliyah, 
let's be clear, but Aaliyah was not Whitney. Aaliyah no. was not Janet. You no. know what I mean? Like, she didn't have a huge, long trajectory, really successful Grammys upon Grammys, you know? We but she was someone her. that I think... Exactly. And I, I, I just think to the hope that some of that is unconscious, that we really understood that even if it was beneath the surface, there was something in this that said this, you know, this person deserves love and hasn't like really received it. And we're going to give it to her as a community. Um, she went through that period where she looked real emo. And Oh, hell you know, yeah. Like, yeah. damn, some yeah. other stuff. Yes. Yeah. So I know. Yeah. But also like remembering that. And I didn't know this. Be- again, I was young. But I didn't know, and this came up after the R. Kelly documentary, that she was, I guess, 12 when Mm -hmm. she met R. Kelly or when she first. And I remember, like, Monica was really young with, like, just one of them days. She was, like, 13 or 14, too, right? But, again, I was younger than all of them. So, in my mind, like, they were kind of older big sisters. But now that I'm older than, you know, Aaliyah lived to be by, like, you know, a decade, I'm like, shit, wait a minute. They was young. You were only 12? Yeah. I mean, she came out when I was in ninth grade. Me and her are the same age. Like, her birthday is what we are in January. Her her birth, her 40th birthday was this month. My 40th birthday is next month. So, we were the same age. Mm. And she came out when we were in ninth grade, which means we were 14. So, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you for the people, Ashley. Where can, if they have been living under a rock and they don't know, where can they find you in the interwebs? I know, right? Um, (laughs) Well, as for right now, you can find me on Twitter at um, my former old private nickname, Brown Blaze, just the color (laughs) brown, blaze like a fire, B-L-A-Z-E. And you can also find me on Facebook um, under my real name, Ashley Yates, and on Instagram, again, under Brown Blaze. and then my website will be launched this year, but you can find me on any of those platforms and you'll be able to key in to where um, my website is launching and we're doing the cultural architecture program. So Yay. yeah, find me on social media for right now. Yay, yep. website. And and then on places like, you know, your show and whatnot. Hey, Friend y'all see you find on the C-Dub show all day, every day. Hey. <laughs> you find, and remember, you can find the C-Dub show across all social media platforms. At the C Dub Show, that's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find me on Facebook as Dub Carolyn, so that the kids don't find me, even though I think that they trolled me anyway. And you can find me on Instagram <laughs> as the Nocturnal Project, and on Twitter as C Dub the Host. You can also visit the C Dub Show at the C Dub and the Say Something Nice Podcast Network at SSNPodcast.com. Make sure to follow us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Acast. Uh, once again, I want to thank Ashley Yates, a.k.a. Brown Blaze, for being on the show. Yay! Yay! Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad we were able to finally connect because we were both so busy. We'd be in the streets. We'd be in the streets. Me too. Thank you for doing the work. <laughs> all right. So, this. <laughs> so that is this episode of the C-Dub Show. We will see all you folks in the interwebs later. It's just us, it ain't fair 
The C-Dub Show.